welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Philippe Struff, PhD. Philippe is a physiotherapist and professor hailing from Belgium. Philippe is well-published and an articulate communicator on the role of the scapula in the causation of and recovery from shoulder pain. Philippe and I discuss the measurement problem as it pertains to scapular dyskinesis. Are we able to reliably assess the scapula using the method of visual observation? What are the potential consequences of this measurement problem for everyday clinical practice? Hopefully, Philippe and I can shed light on these important questions, which might then inform your clinical practice. This conversation was originally recorded in April 2020 for my YouTube show, On the Shoulders of Giants. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Philippe Struff. Thank you very much for joining me. You're someone who I've followed academically for a number of years now. You're quite a prolific researcher when it comes to the shoulder. So I wanted to get you on to have a chat generally, but actually to focus in on the scapula, the contentious scapula, uh, as I'm sure we're going to talk about. So please, if you don't, don't mind, just give us a bit of an introduction about you, your history, and actually how you've evolved over the last, say, 10 years in terms of your research. Yeah, uh, well, thanks, Jared, for, for inviting me for this, uh, this chat. Uh, in, it's, it's early in the morning here, but no problem. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, like, we can have a chat about, about the scapula because, yeah, scapula is, is a bit my, uh, my thing. I started with my, um, doing my PhD in, uh, I think, 2003, something like that, or 2002, I started my, with my PhD until 2008. And um, well, the, the topic of, uh, of this PhD was uh, measuring the from a clinical perspective, measuring the, the scapula. And uh, because at that time, uh, 2003, actually the scapula was big, it was well, it's still a big thing, but it was that day, it was really a big thing. And we were quite sure that that was the thing we needed to address. So the, the next step was to, to measure it. Um, I can uh, remember. When I when I started my PhD, I had to choose. I had the option of choosing two topics uh, of doing my PhD. I could do a study about scapula, or I could could do a study about chronic fatigue syndrome. Because my my supervisor, he was uh, Joe Joe Ness. Yeah, he's a, he's oh, a yeah. specialist in chronic in chronic pain, and in, in in that time he was on on, on chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. But he was also starting something with uh, the scapula, so I could choose. And in that time, two thousand and three, I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to do anything. On chronic fatigue syndrome, but because I imagine they will discuss their your, your the relevance of your topic in ten years, and I I, I was doubting that on, on uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, and now to twenty twenty they're doubting the relevance of scapula dyskinesia. So it's, it's things have changed. <laughs> things have changed exactly. But anyway, I've, I don't have uh, regrets on on choosing the topic, and uh, and uh, but after uh, doing this uh, uh, these things, this PhD. Actually, more at the end, we were doing some trials, some randomized trials, and uh, we wanted to address the problem and uh, and then measure what we what we did. And that's where we actually first uh, encountered some um, um, 
well, not so much difficulties, but but a lot of questions because we 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 focused, for instance, in an, in a randomized trial on 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 uh, the scapular, and we wanted to 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 do scapular stability training in, in supracromial pain patients. And then at the end, they, they 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 did well; they did better than the control group. But when we started doing our, my, my measurements, which I didn't do during my PhD, we actually didn't find any difference between the different measurements. So we were mm. like, okay, what, 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 what did we do? And that was the first time that we actually started questioning uh, the relevance uh, ourselves. And uh, um, that was the moment after the PhD, I evolved to doing uh, a lot of other uh, shoulder-related studies, uh, going more to, uh, but all related to the, um, uh, let's say, the the, the pain, pain and, and shoulder problems. So uh, mm. to front and shoulder, um, rotator cuff tendinopathy or rotator cuff related shoulder pain um, uh, and also the chronic pain uh, story. Mm. Uh, and then actually we, we didn't focus on the scapula as itself, but we always took the scapula thing into the studies uh, as mm. a, a, some sort of secondary uh, parameter, uh, which we wanted to, uh, to still follow. Uh, also, when doing some studies in, in athletes and in, in uh, swimmers, we wanted to follow the, uh, the scapula and still look at that picture, but not a, as one goal on itself anymore, because mm. we know maybe, maybe that's not the case anymore. So, mm. And then over the years, a lot of other colleagues uh, uh, also uh, studied the scapula. And now I think we've, we've come to a point that we, we've evolved a lot and we, we had some more clearer uh, logic sense um, idea of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into the. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very interesting story, actually. So the, it's funny how you mentioned 2003 starting your PhD. The scapula. I mean, it probably wasn't even controversial that the scapula obviously led to pain and pathology, right? It probably was barely questioned. Um, and now here we are, 17 years later, where. You can't have a conversation about the shoulder without actually mention, mentioning the controversial scapula. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In two thousand three, we had three. We had dozens of articles showing that uh, different shoulder populations had uh, also uh, some sort of scapular dyskinesia. So that was in that times. It was like okay, that that that's it. There is a relationship, relationship. So there must be yeah. uh, a cause consequence or whatever. But it's only since then that there are some uh, longitudinal trials going on, looking at uh, predictive value, etc. And then, uh, because it's th that's a type of study that's a little bit more difficult to do, uh, takes a little bit more time, uh, mm -hmm. more money. And uh, we see actually that's only uh, after 2008 that the longitudinal trials uh, started. Mm -hmm. um, that's where, where the good thing uh, happens, of course. The interesting things on, on predictive value, etc. So... Um, mm -hmm. That time, yeah, it was it was it was a certainty. Yeah, yeah. So we could probably do about ten different podcasts on this topic, but I think what we're going to hone in on is this: what I call the measurement problem. It seems to be inherent uh, within within scapular assessment. I think there is a fundamental flaw in how we measure visually with our eyes which is how it's done every single day in clinic all around the world. We don't have fancy 3D biomechanics imaging. We use our eyes, which are very biased, which we won't get into, but we have, we have this measurement problem. And I think if we start at the very beginning, if we're looking at, well, is the scapula a factor in contributing to pain and pathology? And do we need to normalize it to improve pain? 
or does it lead to injury and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have to start at the start. Can we reliably measure it? And mm-hmm. I think that's when we run into our first problem. So in order to have a conversation about this, I guess we have to define what scapular dyskinesis is. Do you have a neat definition on how we, how you would describe a scapular dyskinesis? Yeah, it's a good good point. Um, well, we, we we use observation now as the the main uh, tool for uh, observe for, for looking at or diagnosing a scapular dyskinesis. It's not a, not a pathology, but l- looking at scapular dyskinesis, uh, we had a lot of other measurement techniques in the past to um, to put, to to uh, measure the position of the scapula, but actually these are um, aren't used that more uh, that much anymore. So. Uh, now you'll be mainly use uh, scapular dyskine- um, visual observation, and we look at the moment we look at uh, deviations that are really, really present, really obvious. So um, in in the past we we also used like these subtle things, uh, um, and then we, we we got a colleague and say hey, look 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 at the scapula. What, what do you see? And then you, you start discussing what you see, or you put them in another light. You you do it slow. You do it faster. The movements. You put some weights with it. Uh, you you did several things. You video you made a video of it, and then you made slow motion pictures of it, and then you tried to find something. And I think that's really a, a thing that we we should get rid of. That's a, mm. a part that, that's really not interesting anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. We have no evidence at all that um, obvious scapular dyskinesis is really the predictive value. So mm-hmm. if the obvious thing is not really predictive, or if we don't know mm-hmm. whether it's predictive, then don't bother about the subtle things, I yeah. think. So yeah. the subtle, uh, the, the, in the obvious thing, okay, we have, we have, we don't have evidence that it's predictive, but we have some evidence that it can play a role. But then we speak of uh, a clear uh, medial medial border of the scapula that starts to, to internally rotate, to starts to wing a clear uh, inferior angle uh, that starts to tilt, uh, um, or a, a, a rhythm that's really out of uh, um, uh, out of its linear pattern. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about a clear thing. So actually, I, I in my courses or in classes, I, I put a patient or a, or a subject or a student in front of the, of the classroom, um, all 20 look at their uh, shoulders. And I'm standing on the on the face side of the student. So I, I cannot see the, the, the scapula. And actually, I, I tell them, actually, I should see on you guys whether there's scapula dyskinesis or not. You should mm-hmm. really see it and all do like whoa this this is a big thing and not if this if they're quiet and they're like mm, and they start to discuss i know okay it's not it's not a big deal um mm. only when there's really really something apparent then then maybe we have we, we can start about discussing some of the relevance so don't don't bother about the subtle things for now i, I think so so a dyskinesis in your view would be something that's profound and obvious and it's, it's almost hitting you in the face you don't have to use a magnifying glass to actually see it, right? So it's something that is just doesn't look right. And potentially that may be when it is relevant. But if we're having to deconstruct minutiae and one degree or two degrees of movement, then it's probably entirely irrelevant. Agree? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I, I don't think we we have any evidence of what we're discussing now. It's relevance for the for the obvious things. So I'm, I'm really clear that the clinical relevance of the the subtle things, the maybe the one degree, two degree things, 
I think it could be a waste of time. Yeah. And yeah. we know that there are so many uh, inter-individual variations anyway. There is hand dominance difference. There is a uh, difference mm. between children and, and adults, between adults mm. and elderly. There's a difference between unilateral sports people and bilaterals. And it's, there are so many usual difference that we, we, we cannot... Uh, judge or, or do anything with, with these subtle differences. I yeah, no, you, you're, it's so multifactorial. And, and I usually quote in my courses, there are over 10 factors which have been proven to lead to a scapular variability of movement from person to person. And you mentioned a few, and there's a bunch of other ones as well. So we just can't be yeah. sure what is causing it in the first place. And therefore, if we need to address it, because it could have been there. 20 or 30 years you know we don't know how causal a scapular dyskinesis actually is okay so let's talk about the reliability of it so when, when we're talking about reliability obviously there's intra reliability or intra person or inter person reliability so intra meaning two clinicians uh the same clinician measuring it twice on two different occasions and then inter meaning two different clinicians measuring it and seeing how uh, how much agreement there is between the two so do you have anything to speak to in regards to the intra and inter person reliability um well yeah we we did some uh, reliability studies and a lot of colleagues also did some reliability studies on the uh, observation. Uh, I'm not discussing all the, the measurement types. There are a lot of small measurements with calipers and and and, and inclinometers, etc. And there sometimes they're proven some some reliability. Then then on the other hand, uh, uh, validity is mostly the question there. Um, but on visual observation, um, there has been uh, um, some sort of um, uh, progress uh, towards the, um, uh, the the the. The system of it's actually Philip McClure and Angela Tate that the, that yeah. published these the things on validity and uh, uh, so reliability. The scapular dyskinesis test you're referring exactly. to. Yeah, yeah. and um, they show that actually, well, if, if you if you really address the, the obvious thing and and, and not mm -hmm. so much the subtle, but also the subtle was quite okay there. But if you address the obvious scapular dyskinesis, then then the reliability is, uh, is is okay in terms of inter intra reliability, and also in terms of intra reliability. And they also proved some uh, validity uh, measures if if that's possible, because that's that's also a big question. Mm -hmm. um, so, but uh, but it's again, it's it, it, we we also did the same if we look. It, it all depends on what you're looking at, um, and. Um, we, we 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 split it out in all different factors on, on scapular dyskinesis. For instance, we did we did the the, the scapula is a bit higher than the other, and then you got the internal external rotation, the tilting, of the, and, and the, you get the upward rotation, the downward rotation, the speed, the but whether it's going smooth or non-smooth, um, you get the lateral slide positions. There are several th things we we studied, and we we actually saw that a lot of them are are not reliable. So, for instance, the the whether one scapula is a bit higher than the other it's very mm. difficult and the reliability mm. of that thing is quite bad actually and mm. uh, because one especially the inter-rate reliability because the the one one clinician comes in he says okay your right scapula is, is high and then the other comes in he says the left one is low and then you've got a bad reliability although they you said the same maybe but and then you've got the the, the hand dominance thing so it's it's really not so not, not so mm. interesting so that's why only the the winging the tilting and Maybe the, the rhythm uh, is, uh, is is something you can test mm. or see, um, and which has proven uh, quite good reliability. Mm. Um, 
But, but even even yeah. but even then, there's still only like a moderate reliability, right? So it's it, not it's it's not approaching yeah. excellence or anything like that. Well, ex exactly. It's uh, it, it, then you can discuss about how you uh, report these things in literature because you can talk about the classic. Uh, uh, significance levels of your reliability and your intra-class levels or your kappa values etc uh, it's okay but then there is also from which moment you talk about clinical uh, um, uh, relevance and and then actually we see that we you, you need to achieve quite a high uh, level of agreement in order to make it uh, from a clinical point of view interesting and that's where we see we often have like 0.8 uh, reliability 0.7, 0.8, sometimes 0.9, but mostly it's it's around that. And uh, we know that from a clinical point of value, you should view you should actually get to the 0.9 or more. Um, so that's indeed a, a, a good question. Um, and if you see something, and and if I see something with a patient, and the patient is is away for a few days and he comes back, then I you, you can often see the same thing again because your 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 brain is, is focused on that and you you remember it of course. Um, but then, if you if if there the, you got the inter reliability and someone else uh, is there, then it's really dependent on how you um, introduce the problem. If if I have mm. a patient and I see something and I get a colleague, I say, "Come, colleague, I have something here for you. Look, look, look at that." Yeah. Then he 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 already knows there's something going on here. I should yeah, I should see yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. It's a contextual then, yeah, clue. <laughs> Then again, it's it's really bad for the patient sometimes mm. if I get a colleague in there because mm. then he's thinking, okay, is there is there something at my back going wrong? Now there are two colleagues watching at my uh, back, so there must be some problem. And mm. then yeah, you can you can get a cascade of of, uh, of mm. psychological things going on, which which doesn't help. That's mm. true. <laughs> yeah. So so the intra rate of reliability may be moderate in agreement. I think that's mostly what I've seen, sort of about maybe up to 0 0.7, 0 0.8. Um, at its best, but when I when I had a quick little look at the literature before I came on, and the inter-rater reliability can be really poor, even even when experts, even like scapular experts who are actually doing it. And I saw a funny one by uh, Ben Kibler, who was obviously one of the scapular uh, experts, and he he had a study in 2012 with Ellen, Ellen Becker, and the inter-rater reliability there was 0.16. To 0.26, just in a simple, like two-part classification. So, is there scapular dyskinesis? Yes or no? So that inter-relator, inter-rater reliability was was really poor. So that that is influencing. That's so many issues in there. Yeah, yeah, it's true, but it's it's definitely dependent on what how you classify your scapular dyskinesis. Because yeah. if I say to you, okay, let's only classify scapular dyskinesis as the presence of scapular winging. Mm. That's all for instance, mm. then there's a good chance that the reliability will, will get a lot better. Uh, mm. But if we say, okay, it's capital, it's winging or the presence of some tilting, or you get a non-smooth, and that's a big problem, a non-smooth upward, yeah, what, what's a non-smooth upward rotation? There's so much uh, skin and fat and muscles on there, so mm. what's a non-smooth uh, movement? And that's where all the discussions come in, and then you've got a bad reliability. But, but if I say it's, it's yeah. really only the winging, that's it, mm. then you'll get good reliability, but then you're only addressing one, one thing, of course. Yeah. So when, when we're talking about, if it depends on how we measure it, so that's why the scapular dyskinesis test does quite well, because it, it really just looks at profound winging. Um, so that's yeah. why those those measures tend to do quite well in terms of reliability. Yeah, um, so so if if anybody's listening and they still want to keep measuring the scapula, I think the best way to do it would be the scapular dyskinesis test in terms of visual observation. 
And I think you can read uh, McClure, 2009, I, I think it is, is, is his paper. Anyway, so I'll link to that and you guys can go and read about it. So so that's the reliability. We'll, we'll, we'll cut it off there because, again, I think we could keep talking all day. What about actual diagnostic accuracy? So does measuring the scapula or assessing the scapula actually lead us into thinking, okay, that means there must be a shoulder pathology in, in that shoulder or on that side. Is, is, does assessing the scapula actually lead to an accurate diagnosis? That's the, the big question, of course. Yeah. So, um, well, the, the scapula is kinesis on itself. So first thing, maybe it's, it's not, that's not a diagnosis. It's not a pathology. It's, it's, a, it's a, some, it's at, at most, it's a variation on, on what, what's happening in the normal situation. Um, but then, of course, if the big question is if you see scapula dyskinesis and imagine you've, you've done a reliable assessment uh, with the scapula dyskinesis test, uh, then you have two options. Or you have a patient with shoulder pain or you have a, an, an athlete or, or whoever who doesn't have shoulder pain. And then the question is, OK, what do we do if the, in the case the patient has shoulder pain and what do we do in case the patient doesn't have shoulder pain? And if you address the one with, uh, with without shoulder pain first, um, well, you have um, uh, the, the only literature on that is on athletes, uh, is on swimmers, is on uh, handball players, is on tennis players, uh, rugby, uh, etc. Um, and they're, they're actually quite a lot on that. So I think about there are about six now, six strong longitudinal uh, trials in these groups. And why do they use these groups? Of course, because that's the, the group in which you know that within a year or two years, there will be a lot of shoulder pain patients. So then you can say something for predictive, for, from predictive value. Um, so, um, and all these studies actually accept the one, one uh, or two maybe said, well, there is no predictive value of scapular dyskinesis towards developing shoulder pain. And then only one in handball players, but they addressed only, uh, it was a study of Ben Carson. Um, they said, okay, um, uh, in, in, in the 100% male handball players, we have some development of shoulder pain and some odds ratios that are actually showing that there is a predictive value. And uh, I remember uh, Ben saying, well, it, I, I don't feel really good as being the only one who's showing some predictive value here. Uh, let's do it again or, or add uh, some women in the group. And then um, uh, the study of Ben Carson was, uh, the, the, the whole group of men was added with some uh, group of women in the handball players. And um, it's uh, the study of Anderson. Anderson, uh, that was, I think, 2018, or I'm not sure, something like that. It's actually the same population of, of uh, Ben Carson, but just with, uh, with all the women in it. And now, actually, the, uh, this, the um, um, predictive value was, was gone. Uh, there was no predictive value anymore. So, okay, you could say it's due to the men or, or due to the women, uh, but actually they had a bigger group. There was a bit better uh, sample. Uh, they also got a better power uh, analysis afterwards. So then there was no predictive value. So actually, in, in, in a, uh, when you look at scapular dyskinesis on itself, and that's the important thing, I think, when it, on, on itself, we don't have big evidence that it will develop to, uh, to shoulder pain. Mm. But now there are more and more studies that um, use it not on a factor on itself, but as a factor combined with other factors. Uh, for instance, well, uh, there's one we're, we're going to, to uh, publish soon, I hope, in, in, in a month or month, month or two in swimmers. And also we have one from uh, Merete Muller in, uh, in uh, I think it's also handball players. 
uh, young handball players, in which they show that um, if an athlete has a, an increase in load, then they can have a higher chance of developing shoulder pain. If they have scapular dyskinesis, well, they don't have a predictive don't really have a predictive value for developing shoulder pain. But if you add those two, so going too fast in your load increments, together with the presence of scapular dyskinesis, then the odds uh, rose, uh, rose, no, um, uh, increased. increased a lot. Yeah, increased a lot. Uh, a lot more uh, for developing shoulder pain. So that was actually when we started to think, okay, maybe this whole scapula, this kinesis on itself is, is, is maybe not a big issue, but in relation to other factors might start to play a role. And um, then the load thing came in and, and uh, uh, hypothesis of, of well, scapula, this being a first small predictive factor, but something like, um, uh, I don't know whether you use the, the, the saying uh, the, the canary in, the, in a mine, uh, yeah. uh, which, which drops that when there is some, uh, some gases. Well, now some say, okay, maybe this capital is easy, some, some sort of first sign, like watch out. Uh, it's not developing to shoulder pain unless the load is increased too much. And maybe that was a sort of sign uh, uh, for developing shoulder pain. Mm. But that's a hypothesis. We don't have uh, big evidence on that. Just on, on that molar study in 2017-18, I think, they also found it was the external rotation strength that led to that as well, in addition to the increase in load. So if you had reduced external rotation strength, scapular dyskinesis, and then increased your load by, I think, more than 60%, that's when it became predictive. But just those two things in isolation had no predictive value. So that's when yeah. we start to look at the multifactorial nature of injury, right? So maybe it's the loading which brings out all these potential uh, areas of vulnerability that we have, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And that's where we, uh, uh, where we start to think more and more about um, its, its important relation being the cuff, uh, um, the, the rotator cuff. And um, we, we start more and more to think, well, maybe, uh, maybe the, the, the scapula is, is, we've been blaming the scapula for decades as being the, that's the reason why we have shoulder pain. But maybe actually I'm, I'm really uh, starting to think now that the scapula might be the big savior in the, in the problem, maybe. Maybe yeah. it's, the, it's the scapula that's trying to fix uh, problems that are, are related to the cuff and uh, the cuff is, is not, not, not getting it all done. It's, uh, there is a recruitment problem there. There is maybe tendinopathy, I don't know. And the scapula tries to fix the problem, tries to, uh, to make sure that the cuff is in the be best uh, length tension relationship to, to develop some, some control. Uh, and um, it's not the reason for the, for the shoulder pain. It's rather the sort of, yeah, maybe a, a consequence. And uh, well, I'm, I'm, like in 2003, I was more like, it's, it's, it's the reason for shoulder pain. And I'm almost the other way of the sling saying, I, I almost think it's, it's almost every time the consequence of the, of the problem yeah. and it's trying to fix, it's trying to fix it, but it, yeah, it cannot fix it on its, on its own. I, I yeah. totally agree. I, I think the scapula here is, I think it's adaptive. I think it's adapting to the organism and to the demand of the system as a whole, and it's doing its best to actually allow that human being to do the task that that person wants to do. So I think if we think about it from a macro level, we sort of zoom out a little bit and stop being so microscopic in our analysis, a lot yeah. of these things start to become a little bit more obvious. And that's, that's something that I'm really uh, trying to sort of, uh, demand of my students and, and people is that zoom out, think about what the person is actually trying to do 
instead of saying, well, that scapula is not moving in this textbook manner, therefore that must be leading to pain and pathology. It's far more complicated than that. So that's so that's what we so that's looking at the predictive value. And there's another there's a study by uh, I think it's Wozinger or Wassinger, if it, I think it's a German name, um, 2015, which looked at the diagnostic accuracy of physiotherapists actually determining whether somebody had shoulder pain or not based on their, their assessment of their scapula. And I think it, it came out at, at 50%, which is a coin flip, basically, saying whether that person had, had shoulder pain or not based on the assessment of their scapula. So, so how accurate are we really, or how much information does assessing the scapula actually give us in a physical examination? Does it give us anything more than just looking at range of motion or looking at strength? Is it a waste of time? What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it's it, if if the patient has a has a, a for instance rotator related problem, um, then um, I think it. It's not so much a visual observation I'm thinking about now, but more about symptom modification uh, procedures. Then these these tools in in are actually um, uh, often reducing the the pain in in patients. But um, they're I'm, I'm using this comparison to 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 um, get to your point. Um, if you address um, symptom modification tools like like scapular system test or scapular retraction test, etc., and you get pain reduction, uh, this was often um, explained like, okay, so so there's a scapular problem, eh? um, and it's related to your pain, so we need to address the scapula. But if we look at the other point of view now, we, which we discussed earlier, like, well, maybe it's more the consequence, and you look at the scapular system test as being an, an, a way you, you, you assist the cuff, uh, you unload the cuff, and the, pain has less, uh, the patient has less pain. So actually, it's more like a, like a diagnostic tool for, for cuff problems rather than a, than a scapula problem. Yeah. And uh, that's where actually a, a few years ago, or not so long ago, I think, yeah, 2000, also 18 or 19, there was this paper on, uh, um, uh, I think it was Turkish, or I'm, I'm not sure, uh, um, showing that you can use the scapular assistant as, as a tool for cuff tears, uh, to diagnose cuff tears. Um, and that's where it, 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 it all the, the, the ball starts rolling in in, in, in direction where, where the cuff appeared to be the, the big thing all the, all the time and, and the scapula was not so much, not so much the, to really to blame and, not, and but, but you can by, by addressing it with symptom modification tests you can maybe use it as some sort of diagnostic tool for the cuff problem, not for the scapular problem. Uh, it's not a diagnostic tool. It's more like uh, raising this, the the amount of suspicion. It's it's never uh, w w yes or no, and and we, we we don't have any strong evidence that it's like uh, the new um, the new impingement test uh, using <laughs> using the scapula. So that's not the case. Um, but uh, it's ra about raising suspicion towards a cuff problem. And I think if if I use these modification tests, I raise suspicion in uh, towards a cuff now more than uh, um, uh, than a scapula problem using scapular dyskinesis test or visual observation as any diagnostic test for um, uh, rotator cuff problems. I, I don't use it as a diagnostic test, actually, but it can, it, if, if uh, scapular dyskinesis is present, there, the chances of positive symptom modification tests rise. Eh? So that's, these things are a bit together. So if, if I see a positive 
scapular dyskinesis test in visual observation, I know that my scapular my uh, modification tests will probably be positive, or the chances are higher that they will be positive. So in that way, they may, they might uh, focus on on a cuff uh, issue. So that's maybe a, yeah, a bit the way I follow in my mm. clinical reasoning to mm. uh, to go towards um, uh, the cuff uh, cuff thing. Yeah. I often I often compare that to. Uh, um, um, if you well, I'm not sure whether it's it's gonna gonna uh, be. Do we do we have uh, image also in the yeah, um, yeah. picture also in the, in the okay? Yeah. So if you if you have a cup and uh, and it's full of uh, full of coffee or or, or water, and uh, I often compare the, the the scapula as being your your hand below catching catching the drops, uh, and and if you start walking, that's when you start moving the cuff, and it's the scapula that also always tries to catch the all all, all the drops. But if you start moving fast, so if you're gonna load the cuff hard, yeah, then there is a big chance that it will then it will spill, and then your scapula, your your hand will need to catch more and more of the drops, and eventually you will spill, and you get get maybe a shoulder problem. Um, and then you also have the the amount of water in it, of course. If you if you uh, are an athlete and your your cup is already full, and you're you're training at your at, at the at your risk zone, well, and then start moving fast. Yeah, then you have the biggest problem uh, with your mm. scapula. Then maybe scapula mm. dyskinesis arises. Your your scapula cannot fix it. While mm. on the other hand, if you have a recreative uh, guy um, who is in his thirties, not doing any sports, uh, his cup is, is half full and he's like standing still. He's not doing. He's doing having a desk job. And maybe this thing is really not necessary. It doesn't mm. matter where this where the scapula is. Uh, it's, mm. it, you will not spill. So it's maybe I'm not I'm sure with whether my metaphor is, is coming in, but it's something I use sometimes to explain how the how the scapula works. Now maybe uh, to 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 get to get the thing there, and uh, if the if the load is getting too high, or or there are other factors that that uh, uh, multi-factors that are there, then the scapula will be challenged. But uh, mm. it's not the scapula that's the reason why it's spilling. Yeah, no, exactly right. So that that's my hand. Yeah. That's a really that's a really important point. So, I I do agree when 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 there's high load or high velocity uh, loads going through the shoulder system, for example, in professional overhead athletes, then maybe there is some predictive value in it. But I'm still not certain that you need to normalize the the mechanics of the movement. And in fact, I don't know if there's any any evidence that you can. You still go and strengthen all of the components within the scapulothoracic joint and the glenohumeral joint to, to increase the strength of the of the whole system or the absolute ability of the system. But I still don't think you need to normalize the mechanics of it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, um, when I say um, if you have an athlete, uh, it, it can be a professional, but it doesn't need to be a professional, but it's an athlete who has some load increments and um, if there uh, is the presence of scapular dyskinesis, I think the, the main focus would not be okay. Oh, we should we should check the scapular dyskinesis. We should do something about the scapular dyskinesis because it, otherwise they will develop shoulder pain. No, the first reaction should be we should check the load management eh? yeah. because that's the, that's the reason why things go wrong. Eh? It's mm -hmm. the scapular is is, uh, is is something we don't have high predictive value and it can be mm -hmm. in uh, a way to to stay pain free. Even eh? that's that's also a big good possibility that athletes develop scapular dyskinesis just to stay pain free during the high load increments. Mm. But it's yeah, it's it's like fixing a fixing a problem, and there is a problem is in the load management. Then so yeah, 
Uh, so I, I yeah. tell you what, Tim, Tim Gabbett will be smiling from ear to ear listening to this in regards to all this load management talk uh, yeah. in, in the upper limb, which is unusual. So, so there you go. There is some load management uh, rationale in the upper limb as well. It's not just lower limb issues. I'm certain of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, so that, that maybe rounds off the diagnostic accuracy. Well, I'll just finish with, with one statement, which was from a systematic review, I believe, by Wright in 2013, which suggests that scapular asymmetry or motion alterations do not provide any additional clinical examination benefit with regard to diagnosing shoulder pain or pathology. So that's that. I think that was published in the BJSM in 2013. So quite a quite a bold statement there, saying that really visual observation of the scapula provides not much more information than a typical physical examination of the shoulder. So so just just quickly, I'm just I'm conscious of your time. I don't want to keep you for too long. Are you going to work today? What's going on over in Belgium? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's lockdown time, so uh, we're all uh, working from home now, and uh, uh, we have uh, our meetings uh, through Skype and, and all these uh, things today. Yeah, that's the that's our new way of working. But I, c I can yeah. imagine it's a bit the same uh, for you. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same here. I've I've, I've taken two months off to uh, try and ride it out, but we'll see we'll see how we go. Um, so let's let's finish up with with let's talk about <laughs> so. A lot of the conversation these days centers around imaging and the, the amount of or the prevalence of structural abnormalities that we find on imaging in asymptomatic people as well as symptomatic people. And the same thing probably goes with the scapula. Do we see a high proportion of people who are asymptomatic, so have no pain, have this scapular dyskinesis? And and does that have any bearing on or influence on how we approach people who do have a scapular dyskinesis? And let's just talk about non-athletic day-to-day people here. Yeah, well, um, it's true. So if we just look at, uh, if we take 100 people from, from the streets, non-athletes from the street, um, there have been some some um, uh, systematic reviews on that. I think it was from um, Burn, I think, 2016, who, who said, well, about 33% of just regular people from the street will have scapular dyskinesis. So it's one, uh, one third of, uh, um, of the, the, the people on the street, not, not athletes, will have scapular dyskinesis. And uh, if you look at athletes, it's, it's almost double. It's like 60, 60, around 60%, I can remember. Uh, of people with uh, of athletes with scapular dyskinesis, so healthy non non impaired patients, uh, non impaired people. Yeah, mm. yeah, and I've I've got some I've got some data here. There's one from Yule in 2009, which suggests that up to 72 percent of asymptomatic uh, asymptomatic people can have a scapular dyskinesis, and then the Plummer 2017 study found that 62 yeah. percent of people, and this is just with visual observation of a control yeah. group had a scapular dyskinesis. So here we're getting into trouble again with, well, how relevant is this finding to this person's pain right here, right now, when I could take someone off the street with no pain and they'll have the exact same finding. So yeah. herein lies the controversy or the gray area. How, how do we get around this and how does this influence us in our day-to-day -day practice? Yeah, well, it, it brings us a little bit back to the, to the, our previous discussion in, in, in that case that we, if we look at athletes, we don't have any predictive value. 
So uh, imagine you have people who don't challenge their shoulders uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, then you, you can see scapular dyskinesis or you, or you don't see it. it. It actually doesn't matter a lot. So if, if I have a pain, and also with patients with pain, if, I, if you have patients in, in clinical practice and uh, they have uh, shoulder pain and they have scapular dyskinesis, that's something I will never tell, tell, tell to the patient or rarely tell to the patient, okay, whoa, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some winging here and this and that. Uh, because we, we don't have uh, strong evidence on that. Uh, I use it in my clinical reasoning more to, uh, to go through um, towards the cuff than, uh, than focusing on, the, on scapular dyskinesis. So um, it's, it's true, you can see it a lot. It can be a normal vari variation maybe. Uh, some compared with a gait, uh, you, you, all people walk differently. So uh, maybe it's, uh, it's the same thing with, uh, with the scapula. I don't know, it, it's, it's well possible. Um, we don't have evidence that we need to do anything about it uh, in, a, in a healthy population anyway. So whether it's there or not, maybe we shouldn't bother a lot about, about that, about this, the figures at all. Um, only when the patient develops pain or they uh, challenge their shoulders a lot. That's the groups that uh, we should maybe think about. Um, but in, in, the, in the healthy group, we don't have a big evidence. And the big problem here is also that we will not have evidence in a short time because uh, if you want to know whether the, the non-athlete population will develop shoulder pain based on their scapular dyskinesis, you would need to follow a group of non-athletes and wait until they develop shoulder pain. But that's, that's, that's not possible because then, then you will need to have thousands of people and you will need to follow them for 10 years or longer and wait uh, to see, hopefully to see something. And no, nobody's going to fund that, that type of study. So that's a big thing. Yeah, we need we some uh, billionaire tycoon to develop shoulder pain and then start funding all of these studies, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a disability. Let's, get, uh, let's get, get somebody under yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Bill Gates is into philanthropy these days, so maybe he can have a look at uh, the scapular problem. I'm sure. I'm sure it's, it's a big very outcome. And, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> With all this coronavirus, I'm sure scapular is at the top of the list, right? Perfect. Well, uh, we might. Um, <laughs> we might. We might wrap it up there. Uh, I think. I think we could probably do another conversation at some point over the next month or so and look at actual treatment and see what yeah see if there's any evidence behind specific training versus general training etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh yeah. thanks so much for for joining us you've uh, you've been a you've been a wealth of knowledge uh where can where can people okay. find out more about you Felice? what are you what are your Sorry? social media handles where can people ah, uh find find you well, I'm I'm uh, I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on uh, on Instagram and uh, and Twitter. Um, that's uh, that's the, the easy things, I think. So, uh, um, yeah, cool. if you I'll can link, link, link it on, it's easier. Yeah, sure. And and I have the intention on putting, especially on Instagram, not so much on Twitter, but I have the intention on putting more uh, like videos or uh, um, things on that uh, to steer rehabilitation of cuff uh, cuff issues. That's uh, that's the reason I started with Instagram uh, not so long ago. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll hope, hopefully have a chat soon and we can get to the bottom of actually how we intervene and help people with a scapular dyskinesis, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Philippe Struff. In the time that has elapsed since April 2020, when we recorded this conversation, the content discussed is still accurate and up to date. In fact, evidence keeps rolling in supporting the conjectures made in this discussion. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. 
If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.